Everyone getting on their cars was dressed like pirates. It was very surreal. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is November 19th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio, as always, by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? It's good. I have uh, my Angels hat on because I'm anticipating some hot Sean Figgins Hall of Fame discussion <laughs> oh, nice. later in the show. I, didn't, I don't want to give away too much. Yeah, I didn't make the connection. Most of this show is about Sean Figgins. That voice you hear is Jeff Foster on the line from Los Angeles. Hi, Jeff. How's it going? Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. The big news of the weekend in college football, other than Iowa State beating Texas on a game-winning field goal, which is obviously the actual biggest news, was that Alabama lost quarterback Tua Tungaviola for the season to a dislocated hip, the same injury that ended Bo Jackson's career. Tua had successful surgery on Monday. So what happens now to Alabama? I mean, it sort of depends. I, I feel like the committee can and, you know, will factor in injuries. I actually believe it's like in the in the language. Yeah, I think they have in the past also. Like I remember that was one of the like, oh, sorry, UCF, your starting quarterback got injured. So you're, we can't discuss you. Right, I yeah. mean, not like they were going to include UCF anyway. Right. But. I think the interesting thing is what the, what the committee is going to do about the Pac-12 because it seems like conveniently they've been able to like just write that whole conference off. <laughs> that kind of cannibalizes it, itself each year. And, and now I think, you know, Utah and Oregon present potentially legitimate candidates to get in, um, especially if they keep winning out and winning with style. Yeah, one of them seems like, yeah, they'll end the season with just one loss. I will say that in classic 538 fashion, we wrote about Utah <laughs> And they immediately lost. So if anyone wants us to jinx their rival football team, just let me know. I can yeah, make let's that write happen. About Georgia in a couple weeks. Hey, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess maybe the the Tua injury though uh, does sort of give the committee a little bit of an out compared with what they were looking at, where they were going to have to either take Alabama from like outside the SEC championship game and make a lot of people mad, uh, whoever wins the Big 12 or whoever wins the Pac-12. But now it makes it a little bit of an easier decision. They can kind of fall back on that like, well, they're not at full strength and so we don't know that they're a better team. You know, anything you can do to make this cobbled together group of college administrators, former coaches and former athletic directors uh, sleep better at night. This is sort of adding to the doomsday scenario that we'll write about next week all the things that could make life harder for the playoff committee but like if say Oklahoma loses to Baylor in the Big 12 championship which they should have lost to Baylor last week it'd be pretty easy for the Big 12 to be ignored by the committee and you know one of the you know there'll be someone's gonna lose the SEC championship game right and what if it's LSU and then you've got a couple of one-loss SEC teams, and yeah, then you that's know, pure chaos. Some right? good chaos, yeah. So there's there's lots of there's lots of potential there if you love chaos in college football. One quick bit of housekeeping: Five Thirty Eight has new merch available on our website. So if you're looking to buy a cozy sweatshirt or t-shirt for someone these holidays who might be a fan of the show or the site, head to five thirty eight dot com slash store to buy something. There are really cute hats there. I'm going to buy one for my dad. So this will be the test to find out whether my dad listens to this episode. On today's show, we'll discuss the ongoing controversy around Colin Kaepernick's unconventional NFL workout. We'll be joined by Mike Goodman of StatsBomb to take a look at the English Premier League. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Last week, the NFL announced that it would be holding a private workout for quarterback Colin Kaepernick, who has remained unsigned over the past three years after famously or infamously, depending on who you ask, kneeling during the national anthem in protest of police violence and social injustice. Kaepernick's very public battle with the NFL meant that this workout was always destined to garner media attention. But the situation escalated on Saturday when, not long before the workout was set to begin, Kaepernick's team announced that the workout would not take place as planned in the Atlanta Falcons practice facility, but instead would be held at a high school 59 miles away in Riverdale, Georgia. Kaepernick's team took issue with the liability waiver that the NFL wanted him to sign and the league's refusal to let outside media into the workout. Representatives from 25 of the league's 32 teams had committed to attending the workout at the Falcons' facility, but only eight made it to the secondary location. 
Much of the conversation about the workout played out over Twitter, classic, including around a video posted by ESPN analyst Stephen A. Smith. Here's a clip of what he said. Because of some issue with a liability waiver, Colin Kaepernick wants to change the venue. Colin Kaepernick wants his own receivers. Colin Kaepernick wants to video things himself. You see, you see, he don't want to play. He wants to be a martyr. But guess what? It ain't working this time. You don't want to work. You just want to make noise. And you want to control the narrative. It's over. Colin Kaepernick's aspiration in the NFL. For an NFL career. It's over. Let's dig into the details here. One of the main issues seems to be the waiver the NFL wanted Kaepernick to sign. Neil, can you break down what was in this waiver and why it caused Kaepernick's team pause? Sure. So there were actually kind of two waivers, one that was proposed by Kaepernick's team and then one that was a lot longer that the NFL wanted him to sign for this event at the Falcons uh, facility. So Kaepernick's one was sort of just the basics of you know, the the league and the team doesn't assume any risk if there's some kind of injury. Uh, and it's sort of the basics of just that day. Like if he gets hurt somehow during uh, the, the workout, he's not going to sue them. But it doesn't preclude him from extending uh, his sort of legal uh, battle against the NFL for the, the labor dispute. So the idea that you know, he can still go and do these employment related claims against the NFL or specific teams in the future. Whereas a lot of the extra stuff that was in the NFL one, at least his team interpreted as giving the NFL sort of this, uh, this out that if he signed it, then Legally, it would make it more challenging for him to be able to kind of pursue a lawsuit against them in the future uh, for denying him employment or, you know, kind of unfairly uh, locking him out of the league. So that seemed to be sort of the the big sticking point was whether the NFL, you know, and people tried to say that the NFL was trying to put Kaepernick in this like legal checkmate where by getting him to sign it, give it, you know, and saying under the auspices of of this workout that, you know, it's a privilege to be able to work out in front of all these teams and this, that, and the other, he would actually be sort of signing away the right to uh, sue the league and, or, or at least pursue legal action in the future. Right. And so that was seen by some, including Kaepernick's, you know, a former teammate who called it kind of shady. Um, so that was one sticking point. Another main issue was the presence of media. Kaepernick's team made it clear that they wanted the press to be able to sit in on the workout. The NFL has reported that it gave Kaepernick's team the unprecedented privilege, it said, to the footage that would have been shot by the Atlanta Falcons video team, both the raw footage and whatever was eventually to be circulated to all 32 teams. Jeff, does this seem like a worthwhile sticking point for either side? Just kind of reading between the lines and the the WSJ actually wrote a really great sort of um, behind the scenes TikTok of how it went down. Is that I think it was mostly the waiver. Like I I feel like the media um, point would not have been a deal breaker. It also sounds like it was just basically lawyers bickering and they really were doing it at, at the last minute. I mean, this was all going down, you know, just in the days before. And, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, lawyers, particularly good ones, which I presume uh, I presume both sides have, that they're not going to cave on certain issues. You make a good point that this was all happening, you know, at the last minute, but the whole thing was a last minute thing, which was also strange. Like, why did it have to happen this weekend? Why? Why did it come up so quickly? Well, why does it have to happen at all? Any team could work out with him at any moment. I mean, it all was very, it all smelled like a PR stunt. I mean, that just shows right there, basically why he's never going to get signed anyway, because the league was doing it because they didn't want to give one team the burden of having to do it themselves, because that's such bad PR in this new world where, you know, he's this polarizing figure who's like essentially just a lightning rod for criticism um, among a huge chunk of people in this country. And, you know, the league's like, all right, we'll just do it. And then they, no one's going to point the finger at any one team for just holding a workout with Kaepernick. And it, yeah, it kind of seemed like ultimately both sides got 
a little bit of what they wanted in terms of the league got the cover of being able to uh, say that they extended some kind of olive branch and being able to say that, you know, well, he didn't show up for this official one. And, you know, we tried. We tried. What, what is what does he want us to do? You know, they can kind of give themselves that kind of spin potential. And then on the other side, Kaepernick gets to say, you know, like, well, they didn't let me do it on on the terms I wanted. And they were trying to kind of uh, screw me over. And so but I did it anyway. And I showed that I still could throw. And by the way, I mean, there were tweets uh, and, and I agree from the I watched a little bit of it um, streaming from uh, one of the local Atlanta uh, TV channels. And he looked like he still could throw the ball really well, you know, uh, and we'll get into like, you know, how good presumably he still is and, and whether he still can play. But I think that he at least could advance his case of saying like, well, I still have the talent and I'm, you know, being unjustly locked out of the league while maintaining this, you know, kind of positioning as the, this face of social justice in sports and kind of, you know, advancing that uh, cause. So I think... You know, if I were Kaepernick, it kind of doesn't like, why would you even want to play in the NFL anymore at this point? I mean, you do have that Nike contract. You do uh, have the settlement money from the NFL. The worst thing that could happen would be some team sign you and then you like fail, you know, because then you no longer could kind of say like this whole time I've been locked out of the league on for reasons other than performance. And you would be opening yourself up to injuries, both short term, but also long term head injuries. You know, uh, we've we've seen the effect of that. So I think in a weird way, it kind of reached the stalemate where the league has cover. They want nothing to do with Kaepernick. They just want him to go away. And in a weird way, it's in his best interest not to play football, but occasionally kind of faint toward, you know, like, oh, I, I still want to play. I still can play, you know, while also like not actually playing because it's more valuable to him to not play than to play. I can certainly see how he would actually want to play because I mean, we've well, talked. He loves the game of football. Right. I mean, you know, if we're stepping from like football. a non cynical right. standpoint, you know, but who who in any of this saga or any saga in modern sports media, whatever you want to call it, is coming from a non cynical point at this, <laughs> at this stage? Certainly not us. Well, OK, so you've done some digging into whether Kaepernick is is likely to still be good enough to play in the NFL. What did you find? One of the things that we did uh, with Tony Control Booth Impresario, we we did a video where we looked at, we know how quarterbacks age and we know how good Kaepernick was, at least according to the system that we use for our team ratings and and our quarterback adjustment, how good he was when he last played. Uh, And so what we did was we applied the aging curve for quarterbacks of Kaepernick's age to sort of like age progress him by three years and and say, okay, how good would someone who, when we last saw him, was at a certain level be, you know, at, at the age that he is now? And what we found was that he he was a below average, slightly below average uh, starting quarterback when we last saw him in the league. Uh, and so if you progress him a couple of years, he's going to be below average still. He's going to have most likely lost something off of his talent level. But still, there are starting quarterbacks in the league that are worse than even if you assume not just the average level of decline, but sort of the 25th percentile. So we're sort of saying like, well, maybe just through rust and and not playing, he has aged worse than the average, you know, quarterback would have over time. Uh, even if we assume that he would have this ELO, uh, value of 119. Now to put it in context, that would be 44 points below an average quarterback. So right now, quarterbacks who are at the same level, Ryan Fitzpatrick is a 123. He's about 40 points below an average quarterback. Mitch Trubisky, uh, of the Bears is a 110. He's 52 points worse than an average quarterback. Sam Darn Arnold is a 106. He's 57 points below average. Dwayne Haskins is an 88. He's 75 points below average. So right now, you could say that there are about 26 quarterbacks who either are starting right now or are the team's primary starter but are injured. So think of like Cam Newton, someone like that, who would be better than Kaepernick. And among that group, there would also be eight who would be worse than Kaepernick. And again, this is kind of a worst case or, you know, below average level of aging assumption built in, you know, and we saw from the footage that he still has the arm talent and 
presumably he hasn't lost so much athleticism or whatever that he he would not be you know uh, but a shadow of his former self so that's sort of the conclusion that we came to is that no he wouldn't be a star there was a time in which he was a star but that Time had already long since passed by the point that he began protesting and ultimately was locked out of the league. Uh, but it seems fair to assume that there are still quarterbacks in the league that are starting that he would be better than. And that also means that, like, obviously he's going to be better than almost every backup in the league. It was pretty hard to watch the L.A. Chicago game Sunday night for lots of reasons, but it was hard to watch that and not think. Colin Kaepernick is better than these two quarterbacks. <laughs> well, we have Goff rated higher than than uh, than Kaepernick, but yeah. still, <laughs> for the I moment, don't know about yeah. that. I will say the last year we saw him was on that really, really terrible Chip Kelly uh, kind of hopeless Forty ers team that was two and fourteen, and I think they only beat an equally hopeless uh, Jeff Fisher Rams team twice that year. Those are both their wins, um, so. I mean, that team had, if you look at the weapons around him, I mean, the receivers were like Torrey Smith and Jeremy Curley. Like, it was bad. When he was with Greg Roman, who's now running Lamar Jackson's offense in Baltimore and Jim Harbaugh, I mean, that team was, you know, first and nine away from tying the Super Bowl. He wins a Super Bowl, is a Super Bowl MVP likely. This whole thing has a completely different narrative. Sure. But by the middle of the 2014 season, though, he had already kind of fallen off pretty badly yeah. in our uh, ratings. And then he was replaced by uh, Blaine Gabbert in the in the 2015 uh, season. So, you know, again, he he definitely during like the Super Bowl run uh, and some of those like playoff runs that he did. I mean, I think the one of the best games in our entire data set by any quarterback was Kaepernick against the Packers in the 2012 playoffs in the divisional round uh, when he was 445 ELO points better than an average quarterback in that game. Uh, and that was really sort of like for a lot of people, the coming out party for him. But like you said, they, they almost won that Super Bowl. Uh, so when he was at his best, he was, he seemed like this is the evolution of NFL quarterbacks. And in a weird way, I mean, you see with some of the guys that have come since, like Mahomes, it's sort of a similar combination of like the crazy arm strength and the ability to throw on the run and the mobility and all this. You know, Lamar Jackson falls into that category too, and Deshaun Watson. So yeah, I think so many things can go in a different direction for him. And we're not in this conversation and it never gets to this point. And it's his, his career is really a tragedy, I think, uh, for a lot of different reasons because of that. Well, so Stephen A. Smith said, I think two things that I want us to like talk about. Does he want to play in the NFL? And you kind of think, no, he doesn't. Well, no, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I can't possibly presume to speak for whether he does or does not. I'm just saying from sure. sort of like if you break it down rationally, it almost makes more sense not to than right. to. Right, right. Well, so and then the other thing there is, is, is his career over in the NFL? After this incident, does that slam the door on him ever getting a job? I mean, yeah, I think it already had. Yeah, this would have happened already. I mean, there's teams that are like contenders that are desperate for quarterbacks and they never looked this direction. It's not going to happen. And, you know, as much as we say it's the league this, the league that, it really just is 32 owners. And they they are definitely showing solidarity on this issue. And neither, no, te- no team wants to even be the team that breaks from that, that 32 group and, and, and hold a workout. So, I mean, it would take a very sort of audacious move by an owner. And I, I don't really know what owner that is, um, especially with the, the politics of this and the president weighing in every – I mean it's essentially akin to like signing the whistleblower to, to be your backup quarterback <laughs> at this point. The way I already he, has a great arm. If the whistleblower <laughs> could throw though – Our yeah. new running back, Adam Schiff. It is that – I mean you look – it is so divisive right now in, in terms of the – just go – any person, go and read you know the, the subtweets on any news about Kaepernick and, and, and you'll see some very, <laughs> some very strong opinions. There was a lot of people out there – I was doing this – who were just appalled the fact that he even got this opportunity. You know, like how come none of these other guys who were out of work get an audition to uh, be – I mean that is the mentality that a lot of people are coming at it. Well, that's why – I. I think, you know, you said it's these owners are standing pat and I and I get that. And that's 
Kaepernick's argument of the collusion to keep him out. But I think there's a there's a less evil way of looking at it, too, where you have to say, yeah, I'm going to risk half of my fan base uh, by signing this guy. And that's not something anyone, I think, is willing to do. Well, especially with that 119 quarterback value number, uh, you know, if if it were what it was during that 2012 season, I think people wouldn't have cared. I mean, I think that there would have been vocal opposition to him and he would have been a heel in the league. But when you're winning, the the fans come with you and he could be as outspoken as he wants as long as he can play. I think the problem, the biggest problem with all of this and the thing to, to your point, Sarah, that doesn't even require collusion is the fact that if he were just better, it wouldn't matter. But the fact that he is only better than like a handful of starters in the league, and you're really not going to bring in somebody that's that controversial to be the backup, then you end up with this situation where for the teams that he is better than their current starter, does it make sense to 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 put yourself out there? The season at this point, you know, we're talking about more than midway into a season. For a lot of these teams, the season is basically over. The only team I can think of that it would have made sense to to call his agent and ask about is Detroit, you know, there with Matt Stafford out, who knows how long I've got Jeff Driscoll in there. We think Kaepernick is way better than Jeff Driscoll and they still could make the playoffs, you know, especially before the past few losses. Uh, that's a team where, yeah, they, they have everything to gain. But for a lot of the other teams, it's like, are you really going to replace Sam Darnold? Are you really going to replace Dwayne Haskins? You know, they're trying to develop these quarterbacks. So it's sort of like trying to find the, the round hole that, you know, he can fit into is a little bit difficult, I think, given, you know, the fact that he's just not the star that he used to be. It would have to be a contender with an injured quarterback that was already committed to winning this season. I mean, Pittsburgh, yeah, Pittsburgh. would have made sense. You're right. No, no team's going to bring them in if, if they, if they aren't already kind of all in on the season and really desperate and have no other option. We think he's better than Mason Rudolph for what it's worth. Oh, yeah. This was also true when he was a year out of the right. league and, and, you know, we weren't, we didn't have all this mystery about how, how does a guy show up, you know, being three years removed from playing football. Um, and, and no one signed him then, so no one's going to sign him now. So did this change anything? This No. no. It was never going to change anything. <laughs> no, but I think that yeah. was also the point. It's too bad, too, because it it would be must-see TV <laughs> all of a sudden uh, was starting in a couple weeks. Also, he was an electrifying player. Like I think uh, one of the things we've all forgotten throughout all of this is just how exciting and fun he was to watch when he was at his peak, you know, I mean, we're the, the game is worse without someone like him in it for, for years on end. Yep. Agree. I, I, and it's again, hard to say whether he could ever be that quarterback again. And without that guarantee, what would a team gain by, by bringing him on? This is a messy, messy situation. And it was made messier by this, uh, this weekend's shenanigans. It, it at least moved it along slightly. Everyone's cards are on the table now. If they weren't before, they certainly are now. Before we move on, let's hear from two of this week's sponsors. It's that time of year again. Time to share smiles and good times with friends and family. And of course, exchange gifts. How about you give yourself a gift this year, like straighter, brighter teeth with the help of Candid. Candid's aligners are comfortable, removable, and completely invisible. Candid's aligners can help straighten your teeth faster and cheaper than traditional wire braces. Treatment takes just six months on average and costs 65% less than braces. An experienced orthodontist who is licensed in your state creates a custom treatment plan. Then they show you a 3D preview so you can see how your teeth will look after you're done. There's no hassle of going to an orthodontist office. Candid ships your aligners directly to you. Plus, in this season of giving, Candid donates $25 with each aligner purchased to Smile Train, which brings safe, 100% free cleft lip and palate treatment to children around the globe. Give yourself the gift of Candid. Go to candidco.com slash takedown and use code takedown to get $75 off. That's candidco.com slash takedown, code takedown for $75 off. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. It may feel easier to just brush it off or make excuses. But with Roman, it's easy to talk about it with a real doctor who can prescribe real medication. Roman is simple, safe, and totally discreet. 
With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The doctor will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash Takedown and complete a free online visit. That's GetRoman.com slash Takedown to get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Again, that's GetRoman.com slash Takedown. Hey, listeners, a quick heads up that we recorded this podcast before news broke that Tottenham head coach Mauricio Pochettino was leaving the team. It remains to be seen how this news will affect Tottenham and the league, but we still think this was a good conversation. Enjoy. We're a third of the way through the English Premier League season, and this year's title race is not shaping up as expected. What was anticipated to be a two-horse race between the defending champions, Manchester City, and last year's runner-up, Liverpool, has turned into more of a one-horse race, with Liverpool pulling eight points ahead of the surprising Leicester City and Chelsea. Man City is all the way back in fourth. To help us unpack what exactly is happening in the EPL this season, we're joined by Mike Goodman from StatsBomb and the Double Pivot Podcast. Welcome, Mike. Hey, it's great to be back. Well, let's start off by talking about Liverpool. Should we be surprised that Liverpool has taken a commanding lead of the table? Look, Liverpool are obviously a really good team. Uh, They won the Champions League last year. They were runners-up by a point to Manchester City last season. This is obviously one of the best teams in the Premier League. But I think it is... Somewhat surprising that, as as you said in the open, that it's not a two-horse race. I think the a lot of the underlying numbers would even suggest that Manchester City are the better side to Liverpool. Um, that Liverpool have, while being great, have played towards the top of their sort of expected outcomes, while Manchester City really have dropped points in a number of situations um, where you would have expected them to win, um, both sort of against opposition that you'd have expected them to beat. And then there have just been times where they've played really, really well and the ball won't go in the back of the net. Um, so the degree to which Liverpool is ahead of City specifically, who are actually in fourth place, is I, pretty surprising, I think. Does that suggest that maybe the things will reverse in the, you know, as we go toward the back half of the season? Or, uh, is there enough time for these things to reverse? How, how quickly can, like, if the difference is due to something like luck, how quickly can that turn around? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, nine points, which is the difference between Liverpool and Manchester City, is a lot of points. Um, things can turn around. I mean, City and Liverpool have played once. They just played where Liverpool won three to one. And that's why the lead is so big, but they'll have, they'll have another match in, in the back half of the season. But last year, where there was a little bit of a similar dynamic, where around the halfway mark in the season, Liverpool had pulled, stretched out to a pretty big lead. It was never this big. And the other important thing I think to keep in mind is that last year's version of Manchester City were a little bit better than this year's version of Manchester City. The biggest difference between City last year and City this year is that their sort of do-it-all defensive midfielder, Fernandinho, is 35, and it was amazing at the age of 34 he was able to do what he did last year. But this season, they've tried to progress on from him. They signed Rodri in in the offseason. They've moved Fernandinho to centre-back, and he's been in the mix of centre-backs where he's played a lot because of injuries. And they really haven't been able to find the right mix in midfield to account for that. And so City have become somewhat more defensively vulnerable, more susceptible to the kind of counterattacks that a style like theirs would seem to invite. But last season, through some sort of alchemy and magic, they didn't they were not vulnerable to those counterattacks you would expect. This year they they are somewhat more. The alchemy wore off. <laughs> yeah, basically. And so you you look at that all together and this version of City is a little bit worse. So nine points is a lot of points. And what I'd say is, I think Liverpool are rightly well favored to win the title at this point. I know the 538 model was pretty sticky about City throughout the first third of the season. And it took a pretty big lead for it to tick over into Liverpool being title favorites. But now they are, and significantly so, and I think that's right. But what I would expect is that at some point it will feel like we will have a title race. Whether it's five points or four points or something in that, or two points, something in that range that City will close the gap. But of course, the thing that, that the odds account for really well is closing the gap is not taking over the lead. There are going to be a lot of times where City gets close and doesn't get there. And I think that's probably what the majority of runs of the season are going to end up looking like. 
And that's just a consequence of kind of the natural ebb and flow of, you know, two somewhat evenly matched teams, but maybe, you know, with City having like a slight talent edge, but it's just too much of a margin to ever quite get over the hump. Yeah, that that would be my read of the situation. I mean, like, maybe it happens. Maybe they stage a, a, an amazing comeback that's not out of the realm of possibility, nor is it out of the realm of possibility that Liverpool just completely walk the league for the rest of the year. Liverpool are, like, we focused a lot here on City. Liverpool are a very, very good defensive team. Probably the best defensive team in the league, and they play a somewhat unconventional style of attack that really relies on their fullbacks, Trent Alexander-Arnold um, and, and Robertson on the other side, and... That just is difficult for teams to contend with. I mean, they're clearly the best or second best team in the league. So it's it's not only that City are far back, it's also that they're far back of a very good team. So aside from the Liverpool-City dynamic, perhaps the biggest story of the season has been Leicester City. Now Leicester famously shocked the soccer world by winning the title in the 2015-2016 season. Does this Leicester side remind you at all of that championships team? Actually, no, because they're probably a better team. Um, one of the factors in Leicester City's shock win of the Premier League was that it was a very down year for a lot of teams. Um, so it, it didn't take a ton of points for Leicester to get to the top. And in fact, they managed to do that while also playing significantly ahead of their numbers. It was a very fluky year. Now, they had a couple of great players, both of whom are now gone, right? N'Golo Kante is in the middle of that Chelsea side that, that Leicester are currently tied with on points. Riyad Mahrez is at Manchester City. Uh, Jamie Vardy of, of the, the, the centerpieces of that team is the one who is still there up top for Leicester. But Leicester have turned all of that money and all of that turnover uh, into a really good young side. Um, they've brought in players like Wilfred Ndidi. Uh, you know, they, they have uh, Ben Chilwell at left back. They have a number of uh, James Madison also in midfield, like a number of very strong, young, talented players. And I don't really think it's a surprise to see them challenging among the top four slots this season. There's a dynamic at the end of last year where it seemed like it was possible that some of the chasing pack to what has been traditionally the last few years been a top six um, were going to be able to make a run because Arsenal might have been fairly weak because Manchester United might have been fairly weak. Uh, as it turns out, Spurs are way down, Tottenham Hotspur way down in 14th place, which was unexpected. So there was this gap, this space for some of these teams to step forward. And Leicester City just have a lot of, of talented players. And they're a very strong defensive team who scores just enough with uh, a manager in Brendan Rodgers who is very comfortable playing that way. That I like there's nothing about their performances this year that are shocking. So do you think that Leicester has a chance to catch Liverpool or are they just excited to be in contention for Champions League? Yeah, I think I think more realistic is a top four finish. Um, again, they're eight point. You know, the, Leicester and Chelsea are eight points behind Liverpool, and both of those teams project as teams that are somewhat worse than Liverpool. And so, once you're flipping over to both a big gap in the standings plus a talent gap, it's it take it would take a lot of extreme stuff. Um, you know, look, you never rule out injuries. You never rule out, you know, absolute vengeance from the soccer gods. But <laughs> it, it would take a lot, I think, in order for, for Leicester City in particular to close that gap. But I think that as of now, we should consider them favorites for top for for being one of the top four teams come the end of the season. That's kind of amazing, too. It uh, it really does even further underscore just how remarkable that 2016 uh, yes. run was for them, because it's like it, not only do you have to have a team good enough to, to win, but you also have to be in the right place at the right time. And now we're in this era where, you know, like last year, uh, it was the most points ever by a, a second place finishing team. You know, it's not that same circumstance where you can kind of like take advantage of, of down years from other team so it's really like uh, hearing you say that this year's Leicester team is better than the 2016 one and they you know are going to finish not even close to uh number one is is kind of uh just makes that 2016 team seem even more impressive yeah and the dynamics of the league this year are really especially how good City and Liverpool are have really led to a lot of sort of downstream effects I think what you've seen from a number of teams whether it's Chelsea or Manchester United 
to a certain degree, Arsenal, is that they looked at those the, the teams at the top of the league and they said, we don't really have a chance to compete for a title. Now is a good time to rebuild. And some of those rebuilding efforts are going better than others. Um, Chelsea in particular have, are having a very strong year, I think a much stronger than anticipated season. Uh, but I do think that part of what we're seeing is teams sort of looking at this period of time, a little bit like the NBA looked at the Golden State Warriors and said, well... <laughs> Maybe, maybe we, maybe we can't win this year. Maybe now is a good time to tend to our three year or our five year time horizon. And, and how can we sort of be prepared for the next era, whenever that may be? So there have been a lot of stories written last season in, in previous seasons about how the EPL had a parity problem. Now this season, we're just, we're seeing just a six point differential between fifth and 17th place. The spread hasn't been this tight at this stage in the season since the 2010-2011 season. What's going on with that? Why are these teams so tightly bunched? What's interesting here is that it's not only that they're tightly bunched in the table, it's also that a lot of the underlying statistics are tightly bunched. Uh, What we're picking up on here is not, you know, sometimes you'll have a, a, a year where some good teams play badly, some bad teams play well, and you get to a point decently into the season where everybody's tightly bunched, but you expect over the next two-thirds, three-quarters of the seasons for them to stretch out. What we're seeing here is not really that. What we're seeing here really is a tightly grouped chunk of you know, 10 teams, which is unique, as, as you pointed out. Why that is is an interesting question. I mean, I think there are a lot of there are a lot of individual factors at play. Uh, whatever is going on at Tottenham is is surprising. <laughs> I don't uh, want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> it's too upsetting. <laughs> uh, um, and on, on the flip side, like Manchester United are are playing probably like a top four team, but have been fairly unlucky over the opening stretch of the season. So th- there are a lot of individual uh, things going on. But I also just think that what we've seen is. A number of, over the last couple of years, kind of upstart teams are actually peaking pretty strongly right now. Whether that's Wolverhampton, who came up two seasons ago, whether that's Brighton, who changed managers and are sort of more progressive and forward-thinking right now. Uh, on the the flip side, we have Everton is all the way down in 15th, but they're in year two of a new manager. They've spent a lot in the last few seasons, and their underlying numbers really have them no different than than a contender for the sort of fifth, sixth, seventh place spots. So there is that confluence of circumstances. But also, I just think that when you have teams like City, like, like United and Arsenal and Spurs struggling, part of what's going on is a lot of the talent that maybe would have flowed to them this season is still distributed through the rest of the league. Now, these things tend to correct themselves to resource levels as you go, right? If, if United have years where they struggle, they then go spend, go out and spend a lot of money. We talked about the idea with Leicester a few years ago. They had a great year, and all of a sudden their top three players were bought by great sides. Um, and this that's sort of the way that traditional powers reassert themselves as time goes on. But you do have these small windows occasionally where everything just sort of car crashes together. So is there a team that that's struggled so far that you think still has hope for this season? Is, is Everton one of those teams that you think might turn it on? So on a couple of... On a couple of different levels. I think uh, Manchester United are currently in seventh. If the league has any hope for a top four race, it's going to be, I think, because Manchester United play to a higher level, get some bounces, and get in the mix for the top four. Because they've been good enough, I think, to be in that conversation, um, despite having a, a number of injuries. Paul Pogba has missed a tremendous amount of time. They've, they've had uh, Anthony Martial and, and, and a number of their attackers have been in and out of the lineup. There are two interesting questions, and they're they're tied on points, and that's that's Spurs and Everton, who have 14 points and are in 14th and 15th. That's three points behind Sheffield United in fifth with 17. So everybody, right? So they're they're sort of two very different stories. Spurs are the t- are a team that was expected to be you know the third best best team in the Premier League. They've really struggled, and the numbers indicate that they should be struggling. That for whatever reason, this collection of players that have been very talented over the years are playing quite poorly this year. That's kind of a question mark as to why. Yeah, well, it's the opposite of what you said about like United. I mean, they went out and got players. <laughs> they like yes, they did. They they went out. They made a they made a couple of really big midfield uh, signings in in Tanga and Dombele and, and Giovanni Lo Celso. To a certain extent, those guys haven't been 
in the lineup a ton yet. But also, like, Harry Kane is really struggling. Christian Eriksen, who is in a contract year, which means a very different thing in European soccer than it does in American sports, uh, it has struggled. And so the question for them is, well, are these players just going to stay bad for the course of this season? Usually kind of at this, the, this 12, you know, this 12 game-ish mark, the third of the way through the season, you kind of are what your numbers say you are. So it would be surprising uh, on one level if they all of a sudden got better. But on the other hand, for the past four or five years, this team has been very good with arguably less talent than they're putting on the field now. So maybe the the secret is actually less talent for them. Just don't yeah, even right. bother. Have a non-existent <laughs> midfield and just, just go out and win. <laughs> right, yes. Play without a midfield, and as soon as you try to play with a midfield, things Yeah, exactly. Off. That so, makes so, sense. <laughs> so that's, that's one question. And then Everton, who are tied with them on points, they project as a team that is, eh, you know, sixth best in the league, seventh best in the league. They are a side that if they start playing to their numbers, you would expect would jump up over other teams like Bournemouth, like Burnley, like Crystal Palace, like Newcastle. Teams that right now have uh, slightly more points than them, but don't have numbers that are nearly as impressive. So th- those are sort of two teams that I look that I look at for very, very different reasons and say, yeah, I don't really expect that they will continue to be in 14th and 15th place in the table. <laughs> yeah, Tottenham might fall lower. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's still a lot of soccer to be played this season, obviously, but thanks for helping us make sense of what we've seen so far. Anytime. Always happy to do it. Thank you. Before we move on, let's hear from another of this week's sponsors, ButcherBox. We all know that holiday gatherings are really about the food. What are your guys' must-haves for Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving meal? Well, I like uh, like stuffing and mm. gravy. I think that's my favorite thing. <laughs> gravy, like apart from any mashed potatoes or anything, just gravy. <laughs> yeah, the gravy is is sort of uh, you know it can go on everything. Oh yeah, I want that's it a good to point. go on the I agree. whole plate. <laughs> I agree. I usually just get a fix myself a hot bowl of gravy. <laughs> And eat it like just go to town, like a soup. Gravy goes on everything. Gross. We just put the gravy on everything. I'm with Neil. (laughs) Well, turkey needs uh, gravy because turkey is notoriously dry. My secret for turkey: I cook it upside down, and so the juice goes into the breast, and so that meat is really—it's very juicy and very good. It doesn't even need the gravy. Well, this holiday season, don't leave the most important part of the day up to chance. With ButcherBox, you can guarantee that each and every event is a huge success. ButcherBox offers the highest quality cuts from 100% grass-fed, organic, and free-range meat with no antibiotics or hormones ever, and they deliver that right to your door. Plus, with free shipping, ButcherBox is the most convenient way to get meat the way it's meant to be, natural, fresh, and delicious. No more panicking that the grocery store will run out of whatever you need. And to make things better, ButcherBox is offering new members $20 off your first box plus two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon when you sign up at ButcherBox.com takedown. That's ButcherBox.com takedown for $20 off your first box plus two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon free in your first box. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Jeff, get us started. So today uh, we are talking about the 2020 Baseball Hall of Fame ballot, which came out, I guess, yesterday, a couple days ago. Um, The top of the list is 538 Immortal, beloved player, Derek Jeter, um, (laughs) who we all just... I mean, we could really devote a whole podcast to just talking about great moments in in Jeter history. Jump throws. So many jump throws. um, Flips. Showing up every day. (laughs) Jumping into the stands, bloodying the face. Starting all-star games when he wasn't qualified for. Getting grooved fastballs in said all-star games so that he could potentially hit a home run, but then not actually hitting a home run. Yeah, mostly jump throws, though. Um, But the interesting thing, and I find this kind of funny every year, so I dug into it, is the sort of bottom of the ballot. The guys who are, they're on the ballot. They're, they're Hall of Fame candidates, um, and they will probably, no, definitely not receive any votes. 
Uh, for instance, Sean Figgins. Uh, you mentioned him Sean at the top Figgins. of the show. He's on the ballot. I, there's a there's a campaign right here for Sean Figgins. Yes, to make the this is like the we're going to lead that yeah. a grassroots movement. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'll start with your hat. Amazingly, Sean Figgins with a career war of twenty two point two is not even close to the worst person on the ballot uh, for twenty twenty. That would be Heath Bell with a seven point one career war. That's amazing. Bell. <laughs> wow. JJ Putts. Is on offer if anyone doesn't, you know, sort of like Jeter's resume or Jason Giambi's resume or Bobby Abreu, J.J. Putz is an option. Um, he will likely receive zero votes as well. And then so I sort of started digging back, like, it's kind of curious, why why do we do this? It's, it's sort of like having an Oscars and just nominating every movie that came out, you know, like Hobbs and Shaw <laughs> for Best Picture. Is is Jose Valverde the, the Hobbs and Shaw of... <laughs> this ballot <laughs> possibly i didn't even see Hobbs and Shaw. um so Don't i went lie. back the last 10 years to see actually if if heath bell was the least qualified just based on wins above replacement if he was the least qualified player i i isolated the one and dones the people who were on the ballot for one year um didn't hit the threshold necessary uh to stay on the ballot and then were removed and a lot of these guys like i said just received zero votes and heath bell's actually no he's not he's not the worst at all that honor would go to this one means a lot to neil and i as met fans lenny harris <laughs> lenny harris remember was lenny on harris hall of fame <laughs> 2011 hall of fame ballot lenny harris really i think exclusively a pinch hitter or at least for the majority of his career. Yeah, I, th- I think that's. T- totally he has sure. the most pinch hits of any player in history, which must have been like, okay, give us your big Hall of Fame case, and it's like that's it, that's the case. That's his case. I, I mean, that is kind of a novelty case. Like we gotta like maybe we do need a pinch hitter in Cooperstown. Maybe that was the thinking. So he had one point seven WAR. Second uh, on that list was Tony Womack, who. Had a, a huge hit in the 2001 Game Seven World Series, if That's I remember right. correctly. But that that was that was about it. And then uh, after that, Rick Ankiel, who was on the uh, last last year's ballot, and he didn't receive any votes. I guess that's the. His case would be again sort of like Lenny Harris, one of these novelty cases, as a guy who was a pitcher. And then went away and came back as a starting hitter. Maybe maybe they're, it's like a Otani situation. They were trying to honor Rick Ankiel, um, but he didn't get any votes. I'm kind of surprised Rick Ankiel is out of baseball. So that's yeah, like, wasn't he talking uh, about coming back? Yeah, even? I feel like he could have been on the Hall of Fame ballot and then subsequently played in baseball. Yeah, I'm now seeing that he's 40 years old. So I guess I, I need to update my priors about Rick Ankiel. We had a little bit of a gap there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Eh, what happened to Rick Ankiel? The bottom of the list also includes Brad Lidge, Todd Jones, David Segui. David Segui. Eric Karos. Todd Walker, 10.5 war on the career. Oh, Todd Walker, one of our all-time favorites, uh, especially as a twin. So the other thing that came up, you know, just by looking at this list is that I actually do think there was a decent amount of guys who had legitimate cases who were dismissed after one ballot. And um, Kenny Lofton, Kenny Lofton is the top of that list who who Neil has written about 68.3 war, which is really solid. And, uh, you know, 18 votes didn't make the threshold. Yeah. Yeah. It makes no sense that Kenny Lofton. I think we've even talked about this in a rabbit hole because we had the thing about like who antagonized the twins the most. Right, right, right. <laughs> but yeah, it, it continued to make zero sense that Kenny Lofton is that he dropped off after one year. I mean, what is it? Is it just the fact that he played a bunch of uh Played for a bunch of teams, Jeff? I think that being a, a quant yourself, Neil, that a lot of you know what he did was probably not what the sort of traditional sect looks for. You know, it wasn't a lot of home runs or anything like that. It's sort of like the old Tim Raines case. Yeah. Because he had that similar kind of five-tool skill set. Um, and then below him on the sort of one-and-done list, Kevin Brown. I mean, he had, I believe, some Mitchell Report issues and also just not a generally beloved player 
Um, so that kind of makes that's, more sense. That, that's pretty nice. <laughs> Certainly mildly, by yeah. the media. That, also. I was trying I feel to like tiptoe like on how, how the media thought of Kevin Brown, notoriously <laughs> the meanest man in baseball. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's an underrated aspect of like players should think about how they treat the reporters because that's going to come back to them if they ever want to make the Hall of Fame. It's like kind of hot garbage that they need to care about that. On the other sure. hand, as members of the media, very pro yeah, being nice. To the media, yeah, absolutely. I think that will show its face a lot. Um, you know, when we talked about this, I think a couple episodes ago, when David Ortiz is there, because <sighs> that's a guy who, despite you know the failing a drug test, is beloved by the media and a member of the media now. Yeah, yeah, no, that's well, the real so thing. If you're going to use steroids, you should definitely be nice to reporters. I think a Rod. This is part of a Rod's like you know strategy. Also, is to sort of make himself a media member, ingratiate himself and mm-hmm. then sort of get the Ortiz treatment of like overlooking the steroids. Right. But he doesn't seem to understand that that will never happen. I honestly think he's helping his case though. I think A-Rod has done a tremendous job of rebuilding through his you know work as a broadcaster, rebuilding his reputation post-career. Well, just the fact that he gets a job as a broadcaster. I mean, who we allow to get away with stuff is a constant problem, I think. And so he's already been normalized. He's on... Sunday Night Baseball every week. Yeah. Where's Sean Figgins on the broadcast? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's my question. Exactly. I want to talk about Kenny Lofton one more time for just one second because this is such – his war was 68.3. Derek Jeter was 72.4. Yeah. Derek Jeter is – going to get into the hall of fame and that's the difference between off the ballot and unanimous he won't be unanimous but he'll he'll make it he'll be first and he ballot, shouldn't I would think he was not that good yeah let's do this <gasps> let's go <laughs> so jeter uh my favorite stat that you can kind of look up on baseball reference is say you want to know who the worst fielder of all time is relative to uh position and i do Yes. So you do a little play index search uh, at Baseball Reference, and you will find that none other than Derek Sanderson Jeter is the worst fielder in the history of baseball relative to average. So compared with an average shortstop, and I know shortstops have defensive value, and that's why Jeter, even as a below, vastly below average short, defensive shortstop, still has positive defensive value relative to all players because of the, the defensive adjustment built into work. I can actually but, hear the eye roll in your voice there. It was good. Sure. So he is 243 runs worse than an average fielder. By comparison, Gary Sheffield was only 195 runs worse than an average fielder at his position. Adam Dunn, 172 runs worse. Mike Young, 152 runs worse. So we're talking about, again, throw out the positional adjustments and just say, okay, at the position they played, who was the worst ever? Jeter, statistically, worst fielder ever. But yeah. he's going to be a first he's ballot Hall be, of Famer. Yeah, a Hall of Famer. And a lot of that's just because he stayed. I mean, he stayed at the position past an age when most guys, you know, go to third or go to second. Or- he should have moved off short when they got A Rod. Yeah, A Rod was statistically the superior fielder when the when the Yankees acquired him, and G- and and Jeter went on to play. You know, uh, more than a decade after that. I mean, if Kenny Lofton is not in the Hall of Fame, Derek Jeter should yes. not be in the Hall of yes. Fame. Yes, let's that is, not that's, put yeah. Jeter in until, until Lofton Kenny makes is it. In. Yep, that's let's my that that's campaign. my bargain. Yeah. Let me throw a few more names at you of people who were high on the on the war list and only lasted one ballot. Okay, so after Kevin Brown, we have John Olerud. Famously underrated. Johnny Damon. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's the more interesting. popular in these circles. Lance Berkman. Only five votes, 1%. That is shocking. Johan Santana, the bridge between us, Sarah. Mets world and twins world. Johan Santana, you know, great, great <laughs> stuff on both sides of the bridge. Why not? He so was true. the best pitcher yep. in baseball for what? At least three or four years, yep. right? Cy Young winner, threw a no hitter. No hitter? Perfect game. No hitter. No hitter. No hitter for the Mets. I'm interested in somebody like Cliff Lee. I think he's a, a, he falls yeah. into kind of the same category as a Santana. Yeah, this is his first year on the ballot. And you could have considered him the best pitcher in baseball, certainly if you included postseason for a couple years in there. Um, but again, didn't put up like quite the same total body of work uh, that I'm assuming is what they're holding against Santana also. We could uh, go all day on I these know. guys. I know. I love this. I, it's fun. This The Hall of Fame voting is always really fun to talk well, about. We'll have a chance to revisit it when Absolutely. the when the results come I out know. and then we can and we air can... our grievances about Jeter yep. 
We can make it a full Jeter segment do instead a get of off just my lawn about Jeter. Yeah, exactly. Get off my field. Okay, that will do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help other people discover us. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Mike, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.